2: Hello, and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is the first in a two part special to mark Pride Week, looking at the politics of pride. And as this month marks 50 years since the Sexual Offences Act 1967 decriminalised homosexuality between men in England and Wales, half a century on, where do the battles now lie for the LGBTQ community? In the next episode, I'll speak to Justine Greening, the Education Secretary and Equalities Minister, about what more government needs to do to tackle homophobia. Later in this episode, I'll speak to Labour MP Angela Eagle. But first, I'm joined in the studio by James Holt from Pride, Times columnist Matthew Paris and SNP MP Stuart MacDonald. Welcome to you all. Now, in all the drama of the general election, it went almost unnoticed that Britain elected a record 45 out MPs. That's 7% of the House of Commons, the highest level of representation anywhere in the world. It includes 19 Tories, 19 Labour MPs and seven from the SNP. In Leo Varadkar, Ireland has its first gay tea shop. Four of Scotland's party leaders are gay. So I suppose my first question is, is it any longer a big deal to be a gay politician? Let's start with you, Stuart. it.
3: I don't think so. I don't think it's it's a big deal. Certainly during my, I can I can now say during both elections uh, that I've stood in. <laughs> You're now a veteran. I'm now years. a veteran. I'm on my second prime minister uh, and all the rest of it. But it never it never came up uh, in terms of my sexuality. Nobody ever asked. Uh, and I've never exactly tried to hide it and it's never come back to bite me in the backside. So my experience is no, but that may not be the same for everyone. Um, you know, we still we've still yet to have anybody from the LGBT community lead a party in the United Kingdom, you know, across the UK. We've still yet to have um a transgendered uh politician elected to Parliament, um, although I think there has been Labour or Liberals have, have fielded one one or two candidates. Um, so there's still progress to be made but is it a big deal? I don't think so it's not the sort of talking points no. in
2: a way that it once was and it's particularly uh, striking in Scotland that, uh, yeah, there were four of the party leaders in Scotland that are gay and again that's not seen as a, as a big issue
3: who's the fourth? I can think of Kezia Dugdale Ruth Davidson, Patrick Harvey
2: David Copan who I think is officially the oh. UKIP leader in Scotland must we go there <laughs> <laughs> for numerical terms, <laughs> at least? Uh, okay. What about you, you Matthew? You in in your
1: many staged career, you were an MP at one point. Oh yes. Well, in those days, it would have been completely unthinkable. Uh, there were plenty of gay MPs, and we all knew who they were, but you you couldn't say so, um, and uh, it would have been career death, and indeed was for Maureen Cahoon, for instance, in the in the Labour Party. I'm I. Not quite confident that it's not a big deal any longer. You're quite right, people don't talk about it all the time, but it would be mentioned behind your back. Everybody would know, uh, and it would be thought to be a thing about you. I don't think it would be held against you, and by some it would be would tell in your favour. But it, it does still mark you out, I think. I'm, I'm not sure that I think that's wrong, but I, I don't think we should suppose that it just doesn't matter anymore.
2: Of course, you famously in 1998 outed Peter Mandelson on Newsnight
1: by mistake. By mistake, (laughs) but again because presumably you didn't you didn't
2: consider it a big deal, um, and other people did.
1: Well, no, it's what more the the world you and I belong to, Matt. Uh, We know lots of things that we think everybody knows, and we forget the public (laughs) don't know. And I thought everybody knew that Peter was gay because everyone I knew knew that Peter was gay, and it had been in all the newspapers uh, many times over, but. It had not really filtered down into the public consciousness. And uh, as soon as I said it and I saw Jeremy Paxman's jaw drop, and that's quite a jaw to to <laughs> drop, I, um, I realised I've made a terrible mistake. I, Peter's been very nice to me ever, ever since, but um, I don't. They say he's not a forgiving man. <laughs> I, doubt, <laughs> I doubt I'm forgiven. But looking back on it, it all just seems so silly. I mean, just, we, we both seem so silly to have thought anything of it.
2: But in a way, is that a reflection of. The big transformation that has been in British society or attitudes—that something which was a huge storm at the time of something that you said on a programme that not that many people watched late at night on BBC Two—becomes a huge story.
1: Yes, and I was banned by the BBC, I, the, the, and not only was I banned for a little while from the BBC, but I, I understand a ban is a ban is still in place on the BBC to talk about Peter Mandelson's sexuality. I, I I, don't think the ban would, would be uh, uh, observed any longer, but it's never been never been rescinded. And the speed with which things have changed, as you say, Matt, is just extraordinary. It's left us all kind of panting to keep up.
0: So James, from your point of view, is it a big deal when a politician comes out now? It's less of a big deal when a politician actually comes out, and I think it is more normal for a politician to run for office while being out. Uh, when I first got the, my first job in in Westminster, I was very pleasantly surprised how inclusive uh, the, the par- Parliament and all of the politicians were, actually. But it's still, and you are in the public eye, and it's still, amongst certain aspects of society, still controversial, and the papers will still, to a certain extent, like to create a little bit of a, a frenzy around some people that uh, that do come out. But generally, I think that when you've seen it in recent years, whether it's uh, Justine Greening, for example, and others, that generally it has been um, applauded and welcomed.
2: And it's, it tends to be greeted with a sort of shrug.
0: Yes, it, it is. I think that equal marriage has changed the, the, the national dialogue on a lot of this. It does tend to be greeted with a shrug. And the thing is, that was not the case probably a decade ago. Stuart, what do you think has been the driver behind that change?
3: Gosh, uh, that could be a whole podcast on its own. <laughs> um, I think there's been political leadership, of course, particularly from uh, New Labour, from Tony Blair's uh, Labour Party. I think the fact that more politicians are are upfront about it, uh, are willing to have a bit of fun with it as well, helps. Um, and there's been a real um, a real shift in the way that the gay people themselves talk about it um and have helped shape the agenda and not allow ourselves to be at the mercy of of other people's views. Um that and I think just people are a bit more worldly. Um the rise of the internet probably helps, you know, there's a whole range of things yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah. Some of which may or may not be initially obvious.
1: That there are lots of people can take some credit for it. Um I think Ian McKellen yeah uh, one of them certainly Tony Blair it was actually John Major was the first prime minister to organise a lowering of the age of consent he, he act, or called in Ian McKellen to have a chat with him and he reduced the age of consent from 21 to 18 but but perhaps the, the biggest credit should go not to any individual but to the the british people who turned out to have been much more relaxed about yeah. this than any of us thought 20 years ago
2: and in terms of uh Labels, Matthew, last year you wrote a column for the Times um, where you wrote that your heart sinks. It of the LGBTQIA plus community. Mm. Uh, and the, I think the point that you, you're making is that this group, this community which sort of lumped together, you said that the members of it don't have that much in common.
1: Yeah, I, I think probably gay men and lesbian women have enough in common, um, enough in common... Uh, to uh, to 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 feel a sense of shared interest, I, I wouldn't bother to mention bisexuals because they're they're just sort of halfway between one and the other, and there's millions and millions of them. But if they want to be included too, that's fine. Uh, I as for I never get the terms right, transgender or whatever it is, and 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 I, I can't remember what Q stands for, and I'm not sure. I think the plus just means anyone else we haven't thought of. I'm not sure about that. Uh, I. I, I would be wholeheartedly uh, a, against the discrimination or hurt of anybody on the grounds of of their sexuality or or gender. But I, I I I am uncomfortable with the idea that people who want to change sex are in some sense in the same category as 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 gay people. Uh, most gay men. Uh, don't want to be women. They like being men. They like being gay men. Being a man is quite important to, to me. Uh, most uh, gay women uh, don't want to be men. And people who want a different gender from from the one that they've got seem to me a very deserving and important section of people, but they don't seem to me to, to fit in with, with a, a sort of rainbow coalition.
2: Well, James, from your point of view, Pride speaks for uh, the entire uh, acronym uh,
0: community. <laughs> yes. Um do label do these labels matter? I think they do. We use as a standard form LGBT plus, um, which is to recognise absolutely everyone. It is, as has been said, very, a very broad community, uh, and I think that. We are stronger together. Yes, we all have our own uh, differences. We all have our own agendas. We have our own different struggles. But I actually think collectively as a, as a group, I think that that's part of what we celebrate and what we represent. And it is a genuine challenge sometimes for organisations like Pride and other charities out there to make sure that you don't um completely uh, end up talking about just the l and the in the g um and there are genuine issues about bisexual and transgender and uh, every other part of the community that's uh, that doesn't get the representation we need so it's our sort of aim to to do that uh,
2: while we're talking about how big a deal is the uh, pride this year because it's 50 years since
0: decriminalization it's a an important milestone 50 years uh It's worth remembering that it's uh, the anniversary of partial decriminalisation. So 50 years ago, the law was passed that said that it could be two men and it could be done in private. And that sort of didn't include uh, hotel rooms. It also didn't include Scotland and the Isle of Man and various other places. So it doesn't seem that 50 years doesn't seem that long ago, but for many people, it was still illegal to be be gay. And I think it is one of those big moments of legislation that we need to register and recognise that is a, a milestone in our Sort of queer British history, as it as it were. So I do think that that has a a real historical resonance in this uh, in this year.
2: Stuart, what what do you make of this? How, how important are labels and talk of the community and increasingly long acronyms?
3: I think you know. I understand where Matthew's coming from, and I've got lots of friends who think the same thing. It it I have to say, it doesn't it doesn't particularly. Exercise me one way or the other, but the way I kind of look at it is, and matthew 's right and one says, this is not a new debate; this debate has mm-hmm. raged for a long time, particularly with the inclusion of transgender people um, Some people feel they are their own community distinct and separate from the lesbian, gay, and, and bisexual community. My view is that our uh, our am I as a gay man and the Agenda that gay men have have pushed along with gay women over the last twenty, thirty, forty, fifty years is that harmed by the inclusion of transgender people? No, I don't think it is, and I think it's an entirely it's happened in an entirely natural fashion. It's nobody's been forced to join our community, um, and nobody's tried to keep people out of our community. So I'm I'm relaxed about the fluidity of it, but Matthew's right in one sense. In addition, which is that we do have very different needs and priorities. Um, You know, there was, I remember when I organised the SNP's first ever LGBT conference, I took a call from uh, someone who worked in the third sector and said, you might want to include I in all your posters and and all the rest of it. And I said, "Um, right, okay." I didn't know any intersex people in the SNP, but I thought, why not? So I included I in all the material. A colleague of mine who was working on this with me changed it. I then got a, an email from a woman from the intersex community, furious that we had included this, <laughs> saying, you know, who are you to determine that you speak for the intersex community? So there is a balance to be struck, I think.
1: Yes, you're certainly right that um, needs are, are different, but actually opinions may be yeah. different. There's there's um, a, a very lively argument with, within feminism as to whether by... Your hormonal treatment, or, or or by surgical intervention, you can actually become a woman. And some women say you can't, and some say you can. I don't take sides in in that debate. Uh, so, most gay men would feel kind of torn on the question of of transsexuality and whether you can completely change sex in, in the way that lots of lots of straight people would. Some would think you can, some would think you can't.
3: But if you look at the issue, for example, in North Carolina of the transgender toilets, and that's a debate that's happening here at the minute, I would just call it a toilet. It's the same toilet you have. (laughs) In the house, you don't have separate toilets for different genders. Um, But, you know, there's lots of things that gay men disagree on and gay women disagree on. You know, you may think Shirley Bassey is a living legend. I may prefer Madonna as a living legend. I don't know. But I think... You can, must know what you think about Madonna, for goodness can, sake. No, I do, but in, in terms of whether or not we would agree. But I think, you know, it, by coming together in these different communities as one community under the rainbow flag, to use a term, are we hindered by that? I don't believe we are. I think there is strength to be drawn from it, but I understand why some folk, and I hate to phrase it like this, perhaps more of the old school uh, thought on this, I understand why they perhaps don't get it, Don't don't can, can't get their head around... The coming together of these different people with different identities, different opinions, and ultimately seeking different things.
1: Do we need a community? You you uh, use the expression community more than more than once. Is there is there actually a, a, a community, and is there any need for a community?
3: Well, yes. There's
1: no sort of straight community. Is uh, there? Yeah,
3: it's it's just called it's just called being in the majority, I think, isn't it? But I think there is. You know. The reason I use that expression is because it plainly does exist and it has all of the niceties and ugly parts of any other community. There's a big problem, for example, with racism in the in the gay community. I think that there is a need for it because whilst you and I may be able to go about our lives and our nice bubbles and all the rest of it, the reality is there are lots of people out there, particularly young kids, uh, who don't have the networks that, that you and I might have and who oh, can benefit to do, from, a, from a community. Yeah, yeah. So I don't I, you know I I don't I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't think the assumption that it's a bad thing is would be accurate.
2: How many people do you expect it Pride, on Saturday?
0: So we've we've got 30,000 in the actual parade. Yeah. Uh and last year the uh, official figures from the authorities believe that we had up to a million people across the footprint and of course Pride in London stretches from Regents Park down through Oxford Circus, Piccadilly Circus. It heads down to Westminster. We take over Soho, Trafalgar Square. Uh, So, yeah, I expect that it's going to be a very, very busy day. And where will you be? Uh, I will be in the parade for a, a bit of it. I will be in Soho. I'll be in Trafalgar Square, and it will be. I mean, it is a fantastic day. When we've worked with the authorities before, they do say that it's one of the, the most crime-free days. On because I think that the atmosphere changes in the in in, in London, and people are in a good mood and they're having a good celebration. And we you know, we try to add a little bit of fun to the fact that we're also uh, you know at our heart a protest movement too.
2: But I suppose you're, you're not angrily protesting that's the difference it's it's not a sort of we want change now
0: yeah i i mean it's this is actually for the pride community and for the lgbt community is an interesting discussion point because of course it comes from a protest movement there are a lot of people that now see Pride purely as a party and a celebration and a celebration of diversity, whereas you've got to make sure that we we keep a lot of that campaign element and there will be protests and there will be uh, a number of people that come to Pride to make sure that they continue the, the push for equality. From a personal point of view, I think it's actually wonderful that we have the military, for example, and major companies in the parade, whereas... Ten years ago, 15 years ago, it wasn't necessarily even legal to be open in, uh, openly gay in the, in the military. Uh, and now they're in the Pride Parade. And there was lots of companies that would shy away from the idea that they might have gay employees. And now they celebrate it. And there's community groups and that we can give volume two sports clubs. And I just think that it's just a wonderful uh, illustration of, of, of London as much as, the, uh, as the, the LGBT community here. Let's talk about the DUP. Because one of
2: the striking things that happened in the almost immediately the hours after the general election result emerged, and it became clear that Theresa May was going to have to rely on someone, and unlike David Cameron who turned to the Lib Dems in 2010, she turns the other way and went to uh, the DUP. Remember, this is the p- party where one of its MPs, David Simpson, said in the House of Commons in 2013, "In the Garden of Eden, it was Adam and Eve; it wasn't Adam and Steve." Uh, Ruth Davidson was straight on the phone to Theresa May, demanding assurances that would mean absolutely no decision on LGBTI rights. Either of you surprised by the reaction to the DUP deal, or the way that quite quickly it came on to the fact that it was a bad thing that Theresa May, the leader, the Prime Minister, the leader of the Conservative Party, was seen to be aligning with a party which had those views on homosexuality.
1: To some extent, I, I think that the, the the gay issue has just been seized upon as a particularly obvious example of um, how odd the DUP are and how out of step they are with modern times in England, Scotland, and Wales. Uh, I think that um, I think the English are very doubtful about the, the the DUP. They're doubtful about all sides in Ireland, and I I think the Conservative Party, my fellow MPs, when I was there. Also, always re- regarded the Ulster unionists as extremely difficult and also very reactionary mm. the closest i came to coming out uh, in the house commons was a speech i made on on a on a, uh, an order to extend the the um, legalization of homosexuality in 1967 to northern ireland we'd been forced to do that by the european court of justice and um, the 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 entire ranks of of Ulster MPs all voted against. So, it, it's a reason to find them irritating and un, un, unlikable in in many ways. But I don't think it's a very big thing in political terms.
2: The controversy of the Conservative doing the deal with the DUP. There's been a petition um, calling for the Tory group to be removed from Pride at the weekend. I suppose I should ask you: Are you going to do that? But also, uh, have you been? I don't know, pleasantly surprised by the reaction to. The DUP deal—it it, it seems to have been anger at the idea of doing a par- doing a deal with a party with these views. D- definitely, the,
0: the view has been anger. Um, the DUP aren't in a parade, and they haven't applied to me. <laughs> and it would be quite something <laughs> if they had. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, UKIP have previously applied <laughs> to be in the parade, um, and so there is. We like to have a, a code of conduct for everyone that's in our parade that means that they support the ideals of, of what we are trying to do. And fundamentally, that I don't feel that the DUP would be able to do that. The LGBT Tory group, however, have long campaigned for equality within their own ranks. And actually, I think that they were pivotal in delivering equal marriage uh, a few years ago. And actually, they have come out quite strongly against the DUP deal as well and about the DUP's views. So actually I hope that their inclusion in Pride will actually strengthen their arm in making the case both internally in this government and also to in into Number 10 to actually make sure that equalities and rights hard won aren't rolled back in any, any way. And maybe we can actually use this opportunity to try and help extend rights to Northern Ireland as well.
3: I think it's what, what it shows, I think, is how ignorant... People on the British mainland are of politics in Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah, that's um, basically true. Their, yeah, view- yeah. their views, you know, I find their views abhorrent. Clearly, but their views are clearly not that unusual in political circles in Northern Ireland. Um, do I do I get the concern? Yes, I do. Um, and the reason for that is actually much bigger than just what's happening on these islands. What what the the politics in France have shown, politics in the United States have shown. Uh, is that for all the progress that has been made on social issues like gay rights, there is always someone out there willing and able to roll that back. Um, so do I understand the nervousness? Yes, I do. I think it's amplified by social media. Um, and I I suspect there won't be any receding of gay rights. I, 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 I don't think that will happen. Uh, but I understand why folk were nervous about it. And as the question you ask, you know, were we surprised that people seem to think the Prime Minister had got this so wrong? Um, no, I, I wasn't surprised, I have to say, but I, I don't think it will come to, you know, gay rights being rolled back. The next thing
1: you, you um, opposition politicians can do if you want to make mischief after the great success with the abortion amendment mm. is um, amend something or other to allow gay men who want to marry to have their fare paid by the... By the by, the government to come over to England to get married.
3: I mean, Matthew, that's, that's a very good idea. And I've <laughs> I've, come, I've come out in the top twenty for private members' bills. So there you are. What an excellent idea! Go. What
2: an excellent um, idea. Now let's look um, abroad and what's happening. Uh, interestingly, the Germany's just voted in favour of same-sex marriage. What What do you? Let's start with you, Matthew. What do you? How do you feel when you look abroad at the? It, different attitudes. It, it's
1: such a patchy picture. Uh, uh, Germany, yes. The Australians still haven't seemed to be able to bite the bullet and are all at sixes and seven over it. But there are so many countries in the world where homosexuality is not illegal, but in many places punishable by death. We tend to forget that the majority of the world, the, the laws still are barbaric. Mm. And I, if if there is this um gay. Or LGBT, whatever uh, community <laughs> that you that you claim. One thing we might do is is look a little beyond our own shores and and look at the awful injustices elsewhere in the world. And we are doing, of course, Stonewall is many many organisations
3: are. It's quite right. Well, I, in the last Parliament, I sat on the APPG. Uh, the All-Party Parliamentary Group... Another for, acronym. For, LG, <laughs> ..for LGBT rights, chaired by Nick Herbert, um, Conservative MP, and we, we very much looked at the international situation and I think there are, there are a few things to observe. Increasingly, the UK government seems to think that moves towards decriminalisation seem to be the responsibility of the Department for International Development as opposed to the Foreign Office. I would argue it's a Foreign Office responsibility... Um, but there are countries where, you know, people like the Human Dignity Trust, for example, have identified where decriminalisation could reasonably happen. But Well, they used to see by the end of the next parliament, but that's <laughs> perhaps, when that that's be. perhaps that, shifted. That could be, that could be awesome. That's perhaps shifted <laughs> somewhat. All it takes is some political leadership on that, but hmm. we're making great progress in Germany, as you say. There's Australia. I don't know what on earth is happening in Australia. I will never understand australian politics but if progress is to mean anything then it has to be beyond the shores of the of the united Kingdom. Yeah.
2: i know one of the concerns which is always raised is that the commonwealth has a particularly as a bunch of countries a particularly yeah. bad record and the question is what what more britain should be doing as the head of the commonwealth to b- bring about that change and you're right that parceling mm-hmm. it off to diffid is a sort of
3: Yeah, it it can... uh,
2: Swept under the carpet or or a minority sort of fringe issue.
3: Lowers the priority, I think, in in people's eyes. And, you know, I think in some of these countries, particularly in the Commonwealth, if you have decriminalisation, the results that that will bring, for example, in terms of the spread of HIV and AIDS, you know, criminalisation is one of the biggest factors in the spread of HIV and AIDS around the world. Um, so there's a massive positive knock-on effect in terms of human health, um, in terms of prosperity. Um, I just wish that, you know, political leaders would see that and, and try and seize those opportunities. If we're going to have this great new relationship with the Commonwealth post-Brexit, perhaps that could be one of the high priorities.
1: Africa's a big problem. It, mm-hmm. it is particularly Africa. And uh, n- not only uh, African traditional uh, tribal attitudes but now reinforced with by missionaries and Christianity have mm. produced a very malign cocktail and the difficulty is the other sore issue with Africa is colonialism and colonial attitudes and we, we do have to take care not to be telling people what to think or what to do as as the previous colonial masters, so I think it's a delicate line Yeah, to absolutely. Walk, but, but it's one we must try to walk.
2: I absolutely, I mean, particularly one where the church in this country ties itself up in knots every time it tries to. Yes. D- every time it tries <laughs> yes. to discuss it, and in countries where. Religion and politics are even more entwined than it's mm. even. It's an even uh, trickier. But subject. even
3: even in the United States, you know, people. It's held up as this beacon of progress. Um, it's, <laughs> is it still? It's. It's. <laughs> uh, you know, I was in I was in a, I was in, a an, in the human rights campaign shop in San Francisco last year, and I was shown a map of gay rights in different states across the U.S., and it is a basket case.
2: Mm. Let's move on um, for a moment and discuss. Uh, go b- back to domestic issues and what's happening in Britain. There has been a rise in recorded levels of homophobic hate crime in London. They were up nine percent to more than two thousand the year to April. Some people have sought to link this to Brexit. James, do you think they're right to do that? What What's behind that rise? And does everything just get blamed on Brexit these days?
0: I think that there's a, a, a good. Uh, a good reason for that, to a certain extent, but it's been just being talked about uh, much more, and I think that the prominence of these issues has become more prevalent in the media and so on, so forth. And therefore, I think people are discussing it and more aware of it. Uh, we did some research with Pride that had that we asked, uh, we surveyed people and said forty-two percent of people felt that they had been victims of hate crime, yet only a fifth of that group then went to report anything about it. So I think that the awareness is there. Um, and it has, seems to have increased in the past couple of years. But whether it's actually uh, specifically related, I, I doubt it.
1: On, on Brexit, I, I, think, I think that the whole Brexit thing has gone hand in hand with a large number of people who may have somewhat reactionary attitudes, feeling that at last they can speak and that there are millions more like them. Um, and they have on Brexit and some of them are on, on gay rights too. But I wouldn't think it's a very big effect.
2: But it's a sort of slight feel. oh, we can do that now after Brexit. Yes, we can say what we like. And in, in a weekend barbecue, there was a large fire that somebody was having in their garden and somebody joked, well, you can do that now after Brexit. That sort of sense of yes. the <laughs> all restrictions are off. What What do you think might be
0: behind that? Yeah, I think, that, I think that's
3: right. It's, I mean, it's clearly nothing to do with actually exiting the European Union. Um, but I think, as I mentioned earlier, those people who think they've been ignored for, you know, 25 plus years... Um, whether that's their views on, on gay folk or black people or, you know, whatever imperial yeah. measures. Uh they're now they're now just <laughs> yes. they're they're coming out of the closet and saying, To hell with this, I'm I'm gonna start saying what I what I really think and and actually I think are drawing strength from people, uh, you know, the the liberal mm-hmm. elites um calling them out on social media and that sort of stuff. So certainly they are feeling more emboldened, which is why, just to return to what I said to you earlier, all that horror over the the DUP deal, I don't think actually will result in gay rights yeah. uh, being rolled back. But folk are concerned because people who, who have similar views to those in the DUP uh, are more emboldened than they ever have been before and in countries around the world are taking steps to roll back progress. So... I don't think it's Brexit connected, but it's certainly changed the political atmosphere in which we it's, discuss these things. It's an
0: international mood as well, because yeah. as much as Brexit, the, the over the other side of the Atlantic and everything that Trump is doing, mm. it is exactly the mood that you were both just talking mm. on in that sort of emboldened to be able to be downright offensive sometimes that people <laughs> feel, don't feel as if uh, they have to worry about that Ooh. and it's that sort of war on political correctness actually <clears throat> triggers yeah. and steps over the line into allowing people to be uh, yeah, downright offensive
2: Now, Some of the people who are most affected by that will be young people mm. and in schools who might see that sort of reaction and then be less comfortable with coming out but from Pride's point of view what
0: more could be done in schools I think there's some great initiatives that are being done by various charities which go and tell, go and do workshops and things with kids to make sure that. The, the full spectrum of relationships and sexual identity and sexual health is actually promoted. I think that the government has made some good steps towards making sure that uh, sexual health is uh, treated in an inclusive uh, t- taught in an inclusive, inclusive manner. Bullying is still rife the thing is um, we were doing some work with the Metropolitan Police who are trying to target a lot of this. Kids don't tend to talk about bullying or crimes that are committed to them because they fear that it's going to force them to come out. So if they're suffering homophobic abuse at school, they're unlikely to tell their parents because they are too ashamed to say that they're gay. And so that is one of the things that I think when you have people, um, for example, like Tom Daly, or you've, you've got celebrities that are of a, a generation that are much closer to younger people today, and they see that that uh, is an okay lifestyle to have and completely normal then actually i think those are the sort of things that actually make a lot of difference
1: there's been a a survey recently was it social Attitudes, suggesting that although levels of homophobic bullying in schools are still much too high that the the trend is downwards
0: yes and stonewall did some research as well they found that uh, a lot of that is improving general awareness and i think social attitudes change um as well the the big a spike has actually in uh, transgender bullying um, for uh, people, teenagers and, mm-hmm. and above. That that has been something that is still um, seen as a stigma amongst younger generations, which um, needs to be tackled as well. Stuart, so what's the situation
2: in Scotland? Is it because obviously education being devolved? Yeah. What's happening in schools in Scotland?
3: Well, there's a there's an excellent campaign in Scotland that's been going on for a couple of years, the TIE campaign, which stands for Time for <laughs> Inclusive Education. Um, and they've been talking about all the all the stuff that you've just been talking about, trying to get changes in the Scottish education system. The Scottish government is very much moving in the right direction. Um, could go a bit quicker, in my view, but it's very much <laughs> moving in the right direction. I think looking at education and sexual health in particular, because, again, that sexual health policy has devolved, looking at what's happening in England as an outsider, if I may call myself that, um, there, is a, there is a slightly odd approach the government seems to take to education as far as sexual health goes and in actual fact sexual health more generally. If you take two issues, you know, the, the drug PrEP pre-exposure prophylaxis, which has been shown to be hugely successful in reducing the transmission of HIV. The Scottish government was the first in the UK to say we're going to provide that on the NHS. The Welsh government have followed suit. And the UK government, NHS England, wanted to do all these surveys and pilots and tests, which had already been done um, anyway, and were really dragging their heels. And finally, they've come to a point where they're going to do this. But at the same time, they moved legislation in the House of Commons to try and ban poppers, which give you a, a 10 second rush of blood to the head and do you no damage whatsoever. So looking at it from the outside, I'm thinking, what on earth are the priorities of this government as far as sexual health and education are concerned a bit upside down in my view so uh, i hope to use my position coming down to london a few days a week to help enlighten um, <laughs> our <laughs> colleagues in the department for health is that it's part of the problem that
2: it's sort of partly education it's partly department for equalities it's partly department for health the home office deal with and so it all sort of ends up being a bit bitty in unless Presumably, <laughs> that ends up falling to justin green as equalities minister sort of pull the stuff together and say that's contradicting that or you need to be it can, it can be you know, to,
3: to, i think to be entirely fair to the Conservatives, there are people within the government that do get this so for example um i've been doing some work over the last couple of years on blood donations policy for men who have sex with men there are good people in the in the government who understand the anomaly here and an actual fact that it's not sustainable not just from inequality but Aspect, which is actually the weakest argument, in my view. But from a science and a health um, uh, viewpoint, it's unsustainable. So there are folk that get it um, and progress is being made. But I think, you know, if you take that issue of PrEP, which massively helps the gay community, not exclusively, but massively, if that was something that was about straight white men, there'd be no debate, there'd be no trials, there'd be no need for pilots, it would just get done. Uh, And that feeds through... I think, to young people. Um, And I think it's helped not just by education, but the way young people get their education now is not really in the classroom. It's on YouTube. It's listening to young gay YouTubers, uh, podcasts perhaps just like this one. And I think that us crusty old people need to get our heads around that and realise that that's where folk are getting their education. That comes with massive benefits, but also enormous risks as well.
2: Because you can't control it in the way you you might control control the national curriculum So joined now by Angela Eagle, the Labour MP, the first MP to come out in office. Is that right, Angela, the first MP to come out in office?
5: Um, I, I think probably I, I was the first lesbian to come out rather than be dragged out. Uh, Maureen Colhoun, who was a Labour MP in the 1970s, was... Um, dragged out um, but uh, I, I think my experience was wholly more positive
2: so that was in 1997 which doesn't feel like
5: 1998 the, i think 1998
2: yeah so that doesn't feel like that long ago but what but then actually quite a lot has happened in the meantime and when i was uh talking to the panel earlier they yeah. were saying well actually you know it was around the, it was in uh around the same time when matthew paris outed Peter Madison on t v and that sort of thing and actually it it was a different time so what was what was your experience at the time?
5: I don't think many people who who fought to get decriminalization could have thought that we'd come as far as we have um fifty years later, and certainly a, a lot of the change has been accelerated in the last uh twenty twenty years really um what's happened really is that I think that public attitudes changed. Before the government changed its attitude, the old Conservative government had a, a, um, a very bad view of all of this and perpetrated Section 28, which left a lot of people very unsupported and isolated. And when we had the Labour government come in, we uh, made change over those three terms of office. that was very, very profound indeed, and basically more or less equalized the law um, for uh, LGBT people across a whole swathe of areas. And I think that once that happens, particularly with um, civil partnerships and going on to gay marriage, people begin to perceive uh, the love that people have for each other uh, as what it is, love, and and it becomes more normalised and people accept it and are less threatened by it. Uh, And I think that we saw that happening over that period of the Labour government in office. If you'd have asked me in 1998 when I came out, whether we would be where we are now with more or less uh, equality, uh, with gay marriage accepted, uh, with huge pride marches and all of that, with um, protection against being discriminated, against in the the provision of goods and services all across the piece that's that's really good um so we've had a a fantastic period where we've made great strides um i also though um see some clouds on the horizon i think we have to be aware that we don't slip backwards
2: What, what what are the areas which you think there still either needs to be progress to be made or there are risks
5: Well, I think um, there are risks of slipping backwards when you don't have a progressive majority in Parliament. And although we have many more out LGBT people in Parliament now um, on all sides of the House, that's great. And that helps to ensure that we can try to protect the gains that have been made. But at the same time, we also have a government that's just done a deal with the DUP um, to keep itself in office. And we know what their views of uh, LGBT people are. and it's quite difficult to see them at the centre of decision making that, uh, that sends a warning shot. I also think that the rise of populism and nationalism across the pieces sends warning shots about uh, the general uh, view of uh, gay people. Um, you get increases in sexism, in racism and uh, anti-gay feeling in eras of populist revolt and so I just think we've got to be very careful.
2: One of the people who's been particularly outspoken about the DUP deals, Ruth Davidson, who, of course, you shared a platform with during the EU referendum campaign. And the the famous quote that she used (laughs) when uh, it was Well, I would have
5: shared a platform with her, but she stopped it happening.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This is when she was discussing it with uh, Sir Craig, as he is now, Sir Craig Oliver, Mm -hmm. former spin doctor from uh, Number 10. And her reaction was, uh, Angela and I are very similar. Are you sure you want two shovel-faced lesbians? on the same stage. How did you feel when you heard her... Heard well, her...
5: she can speak for herself.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but see, seeing, um, seeing Ruth Davidson, I mean, she couldn't... In many ways, she couldn't be more different to the sort of pre-'97 Conservative Party that the, the new Labour government, in so many ways, was a sort of reaction against. Did yeah. you ever sort of imagine that you'd... Have well, an...
5: I, I think that the acceptance of, of openly uh lgbt politicians be they uh men or women um in whatever party that they are uh, is a great thing because it just does say look yes i'm i'm lesbian or gay but i've also got a whole load of other views uh you know i'm in the labor party i'm a conservative um and and i just think that people these days in politics want uh authenticity they don't want people to be hiding the sort uh, who they are and uh, and obviously, if you're out and you're open about this very important part of you, then you're far more likely to be being authentic. Uh, and I think that people pick up on that and they respect you for it.
2: Well, that's all we've got time for this week. As ever, sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox plus. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes on your Android device so in the next episode with Justin Greening drops, it will show up immediately. But for now, my thanks to all of my guests, Stuart McDonald, Angela Eagle, Matthew Paris and James Holt, and for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.
1: Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.